Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Blessed Father, as we do bow before you, we ask your assistance. Uh, What a privilege, what an honor, um, what a joy to know that when your name is proclaimed, you stand beside us. You actually are sharing in this worship service with us. And you know the distractions that I've met with this week. You know how so many different thoughts have run through my pages. But God, you are the God of order, and your voice should be heard over mine today. Because it is a blessed message. And I pray, God, that it will touch all the hearts that have gathered here to get today, the young, the old. Whoever is here, Lord, I pray that this message would have an impact on our hearts. Indeed, every time we meet and we examine what's in Scripture, I pray that your spirit would be awakening our souls. Because we do confess, even this morning, that a lot of times the things of this world stand in our way of true meditation, true prayer, true worship. It's as though we come crippled. Heal us, I pray thee, O Lord, and I pray, God, that you you will actually say that which needs to be said. In Jesus' name, amen. Once again, this is a Palm Sunday message, and as I contemplated that, Palm Sunday, Easter, and Christmas happen to be those uh, sermons, those themes that are probably the hardest to talk about, hardest to preach from. Why is that? Because they're grand themes. In fact, they're central to the life of Christianity, isn't it? The incarnation, uh, Christ's death and resurrection, Palm Sunday leading up to that thing. Why is it that that happens to be one of the most difficult things to preach from? And I'll tell you for sure and for certain, it's familiarity. That's what really grabs all of us. Because regardless of your age, now the older people, they will truly testify to this. Uh, Some of you have been around since dirt, and you've had this message over and over and over again. Consequently, when you gather here, it's kind of like a fog that's in your eyes. It's, well, done that, seen that, heard that, so tune off, okay? And that's actually kind of a shame because you know something? This is a real important message, not just the entrance into Jerusalem, but what culminates in the climax of Christ's life, the crucifixion and the resurrection. So I've entitled this sermon, I Would See Jesus. And I think that's probably what I want to grab all of you and have you turn your head a little bit to focus on what Christ is actually speaking about 
in this text, and hopefully that heart's desire to see Jesus a little bit clearer would come forth. I borrowed this from something that's even in the text itself in John, and I'm primarily, I'm going to be preaching from the Gospel of John. But in John, there is a cameo or uh, a little tidbit there, right in the middle of this whole story of Christ going up into Jerusalem that deals with the Greeks. And the Greeks come to Philip and Andrew, actually Philip first, we would see Jesus. Among all those people there, we would see Jesus. And all those people there were who? Israelites, Jews. They were God's chosen people. Here were these Greeks were, we would see Jesus. And I love that request. And Philip, Philip being who he was, he told Andrew, Andrew told Jesus. And I'll go into that later on in the sermon. But that is the title of the sermon, I Would See Jesus. <clears throat> you know, the question before us this morning, the question before those people has been with them for the three and a half years that he's been in public ministry. Are you the Christ? Now, we come from a slightly disadvantaged place because we can't slip our feet into their shoes, can we? We try to, but let's face it. We are in the 21st century, and what we stand on, we stand on the shoulders of the church, churchmen throughout the ages that have actually honed and shaped and brought a clear understanding of who this Jesus is over the centuries. It's not new revelation, okay? It's not new revelation, but it's a clarity in which people over the ages have come to know Jesus in total, okay? But have you ever stopped and thought about what it must have been like for the first century Jew? And I'm not sure how all of them or, or whether all of them were actually anticipating the Messiah coming. Because you know within the American populace, not all people are chasing after Jesus. So whether in fact all Israelites were doing that, I don't know. But the vast majority of them trained in the synagogue. Actually, it was drummed into their head. If they're going through the Old Testament, that was in their mind, the Messiah is going to come someday. Unless you're a blockhead and you just didn't pay attention. That was on their mind, okay? And so the question is very, very relevant. Are you the Christ? And first of all, we want to go backwards instead of uh, tackling the entrance. And in John uh, chapter 10, I just want to remind you of this thing that uh, happened in its days and months before. It's in a different feast. The setting is in a totally different feast. At the time the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I tell you, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And it continues, but you get the idea. 
You know, this has been around, this pursuit of the authenticity of Jesus. And so that's actually what I'm chasing right now is uh, the credentials, the credibility that Jesus is truly the Messiah throughout this message. And actually, I'm going to break it down into three areas so that we can kind of follow along a little bit easier. And that is, um, I'm going to be speaking on the validation message and response. Validation message and response. All four of the Gospels pick up this theme of Palm Sunday. But they have various um, stories that are connected with this incident in Christ's life in which, what is he doing? He's actually going publicly and finally, by the way, publicly and finally to the Jews that are gathered for Passover. And he's entering into that realm, making a declaration, not with a lip, but by signs. By his arriving, the way he arrived was stating that he is indeed the Messiah, the King. Okay, so that's the main event. And what we're actually looking for is to think in our minds, would we be affected by the signs that had been given to the Jews prior to his arrival, even on this day? Would we have been affected by that? Would we have been convinced of that? Well, there's four views, and some of them, they highlight certain areas, but all of them are consistent in this one, as well as the second one. But all of them uh, center around this issue of the donkey. Now, these are signs, and you might scratch your head and say, well, how is that relevant? Why do, need, I, why do I need to pay attention? The second one is uh, we notice that there's crowds gathered around, and there's, they seem to be saying the same thing. Hosanna, pray, uh, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And that was um, actually read to us in Psalm 118 is part of those uh, psalms that all of the Israelites would enter into as they went up into Jerusalem for Passover. And God bless them. These people knew it by heart. They would go up there. I don't think they had song sheets. They knew it. They memorized this whole thing. And they were up there singing away. This whole thing, and, and this 113 to 118, these boys knew it. And so that's what uh, was going on that day. But there's another thing that was actually a sign that Jesus wanted the people to kind of center their minds around is after that entrance occurred in all of the Gospels, except John, is the purging of the temple. And isn't it true that God comes to the house, his house first, to purge his house before that which he has declared, that which he has purposed, is to be accomplished? He comes to our house, the house of God, to do that. Then Luke is the only one that does record Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Now we'll touch on that. But there's actually four things there that we need to be keying in on when we're talking about signs that will convince us that Jesus is the Christ. But the last one, ironically enough, is only recorded in the Gospel of John, and that's the resurrection of Lazarus. That seems rather odd because that seems, wow, that seems momentous. That seems huge. You know, if, if somebody is raised from the dead, wouldn't that be uh, something that establishes your credibility? But this is, very, this is something that we need to be considering whether, in fact, we would be uh, convinced that Jesus is the Messiah as we look at it. 
Because if you think about the first century Christian, they were not grounded as we are, and so they're always asking the questions. Is this true? Is this really true that Jesus is the Messiah? And we need to think in those terms as we pass through this. I wanted to just remind us of something here that, um, that preceded the, the uh, crucifixion, preceded the climax of Jesus' ministry, but it was related just to the, to the disciples, recounted in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, I want to read this. He says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. That has to be in the back of our understanding of how the disciples are looking at this. Everything that's transpiring. This is the week before what's happening. In fact, it's entering into his Passion Week. Now, prior to this, they've been warned. And we all know how they assimilated that. That was like as confusing as it, as it could be. But my... My intention is to have all of these things converge so that we can understand how many of them arrived concretely on the fact Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the Messiah, the long-awaited one. It was uh, mentioned in the Old Testament. Well, first of all, I want to talk about the significance of the donkey. I'm glad that uh, Chris read from Luke. I didn't want to read all the accounts concerning it. Uh, they do vary a little bit. Matthew actually gives us more information than the rest of them. John is interesting. He mentions it, and he, he wants to skip through it real quick. Donkey, boom, we're gone. Matthew, on the other hand, he gives us some information about it. And so I'm going to read from Matthew so that you can hear how he, how he focuses in on, the, on this issue of a donkey. From uh, chapter 21, it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, came to Bethage and the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Now that's something that the rest of the troops didn't include in it. I found it very interesting. So you got two animals. You got, you got a donkey and a colt tied together. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, and then we are going to actually read Zechariah 9.9. But for the time being, I want to stop for a second, pause a little bit, and then reflect on the significance of donkey here. Well, in David's time, that was actually a kingly image. He would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. He didn't ride into Jerusalem on a war horse. In fact, it wasn't until after David then they started using war horses. And it was a symbol of something. And even Jesus picks, picks up on this. He picks up on it, and it's going to be reinterpreted by those that have eyes to see and ears to hear that Jesus mounted on the foal, that's not the donkey, but the foal that has never been ridden before, entering into Jerusalem, he's proclaiming something without speaking. Those that actually understood what he was doing understood he's coming in the name of peace. 
not as a warrior, not as a judge, but as someone who's coming in peace. Humble. The kingly image, but absolutely humble. A servant. Not to be served, but a servant. What an image. In fact, if you were to stop and slow down a little bit and go onto that road, uh, it must have been an awkward sight. I mean, Jesus was there, this little foal. His feet probably were brushing the dirt. And before he got on uh, the foal, now one of the, uh, the Gospels proclaimed that as they threw their coats on top of the foal, uh, they picked him up and put him on the foal. Others don't include that. Say, Jesus got up and he mounted the foal, and off he went. Okay. But nevertheless, even the, the imagery of the coats, not just the disciples that were gathered there, putting their coats on the foal. And then as he was traveling towards Jerusalem, these crowds, and they had built, okay, you had the disciples, you had their entourage, all the people had been following Jesus. Then you had the other people that were coming from Jerusalem. They were coming to meet him. The ones that were coming with Jesus were throwing coats in front of where Jesus was traveling. Okay? Doesn't it kind of remind you of that episode in 2 Kings where King Jehu comes in and that's what they were doing. They are throwing coats in front of him as he was entering into the city. These are little things that kind of jar your memory. And as you're familiar with scripture and you're going through here, ah, that, that sure sounds a lot like what happened in the old days. And everything that Jesus does is very intentional. It's, nothing is accidental. Nothing, nothing he does. In fact, even his calling his disciples to go and fetch that foal is extremely intentional because Jesus knows the word of God, doesn't he? He knows it. And that's why we're going to go back to Zechariah 9.9 because it's proclaimed, prophesied. It's so crystal clear that that's what's going to happen when this event comes along. <clears throat> He comes in in all humility, and it kind of reminds us, even the chant that they were chanting as Chris was reading this, glory to God in the highest. Well, glory to God in the highest and the earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased, was actually already spoken about in Luke chapter 2 in his birth, right? That was the cry. That was the proclamation. That was the entrance of the king coming in. That was the declaration. The king of peace has come. Now, what Jesus is intentionally doing right here, this is that last trumpet call for his people. The last public trumpet call for his people. Do you remember one month ago? I guess it was one month ago. I told you about that encounter with Jesus and the Pharisees. He looked them in the eye. That message was, must have been very unnerving to them. Because that message was closing a door. They couldn't get with the program, and he unpacked that parable, and it must have been shocking. That was directed specifically to those that were of the religious elite that refused to believe in Jesus Christ. Now he is coming to make open proclamation, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand it's a last trumpet call for people to awaken from their slumber. <clears throat> when, you're, when we're thinking about uh, 
this thread concerning the, uh, the donkey. There is a thread in Scripture. It's not just related to us in, in Zechariah 9. There's actually several instances where you can trace this understanding or this ideology of a donkey. And the first place that I could find is in Genesis 49. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And listen to verse 11. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey colt to the choice vine. And you get, got, you get to thinking about that. The people knew what was going on in the Old Testament. And now we have this living picture of the colt coming in. And then, to back up that, you go to Zechariah 9, and it's even clearer than the, the passage in Genesis. Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That colt foal of a donkey, you know, it talks about purification rites, and you can find that in Numbers chapter 9, I believe. These are concepts that have been developed over separateness, holiness, that which is devoted, that has not been polluted by anything else. Consequently, it's not uh, just as an aside that that cult has never been written. It's not accidental. Very purposely, God has said, you know something? Jesus has said, I want that cult that has never been written. The aside in Matthew is pretty clever, I think. The donkey probably would calm the nerves of that which was never been ridden. So probably the donkey was going alongside with Jesus. But continuing with this, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And I love that that, uh, prophecy. I think if you have tremendous memories much better than mine, you will recall how Kit unpacked that. And he does a better job than I'm doing right now, but you can recall the significance of that prophecy and how important it is, even in the revealing of what's happening on Palm Sunday at the time. What a beautiful passage. Well, the other people that are coming down from Jerusalem... And I have to back up just a second because I want to set another scene for us of understanding. John is the only one that actually delivers to us what's happening sequentially. Okay, Jesus has just been with Mary and Lazarus in this dinner party. Okay, in this dinner party to celebrate all things of the resurrection of Lazarus. But Mary is anointing Jesus' feet, isn't she? In in the Gospel of John. This isn't contained in the other Gospels right prior to this. But so you had the resurrection of Lazarus, and then you had the anointing, and then you had the Pharisees. You just got to love the Pharisees because they were incited. They want to kill Lazarus. They're after him. Because if anything will convince the people that Jesus is authentic, he is truly God, that resurrection of Lazarus, that was bad news. 
So they were incited to actually go after Lazarus, and this party was stirring the pot. So as he gets up the next day to ride into Jerusalem, guess what you have? It was, they didn't have the internet. They didn't have their cell phones. They didn't have any of this magic uh, imparting of ways across the world instantaneously. But they had gossipers. And consequently, in that region at that time, it had spread like wildfire fire, that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. And they knew for sure and for certain that the Pharisees were after him, after his head and Lazarus. They were stirred up to do that. So it's not just a case of all these pilgrims actually going into Jerusalem for Passover, which they're doing. It's actually more heightened than that. Because there's a sense in which there's a lot of people that are in that crowd that are slightly bloodthirsty. And they want to see what's going on. They want to see how this pot is going to be stirred up. So you not only have people from Jerusalem that have heard that he's coming, and they've also witnessed the fact that he raised Lazarus from the dead, and they've heard the stories, and they want to know what's going on. They're very curious. And they come to greet him with palm palm fronds, waving like flags. And it's no wonder that they were doing that waving flag. Some of the churches that you see, they get ready, and at the way they celebrate it, they have palm fronds in front of the, 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 uh, the pulpit, and they got them all lined out, got kids waving them around, stuff like that. Very few times they slow down and ask the question, what's the significance of the palm? Well, in the second Maccabean revolt, and they were pushing against uh, their oppressors, they won the battle, they minted a coin for Israel because they were interested in solidarity, keeping Israel together, not being polluted by those outside forces that would actually uh, dilute them, actually spread them apart. So after that revolt, they minted a coin, and on that coin was the palm branch. It was, a symbol, uh, it was symbolic of national unity. That's what, that's what represented Israel. So you had these two groups of people converging in, in the back of our minds, because we're dealing with the signs that have been lined up. We have the fold as he's entering in. You have the fact that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. He has been anointed as if this burial anointing. And so uh, John makes an interesting comment. In verse 16, after all this is gathered, because we're, we're talking about the, the verification of who Jesus is. Verse 16, it says, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So you got a whole bunch of people. In fact, if you break it down for a second and think about it, what what? It was the consistency of the crowd that was gathered. And I broke it down into three specific uh, divisions. Of course, there's people there that didn't believe. They had all the evidence in front of them. They just didn't believe. Then you had the other people that were skeptical. They had an element of faith. They had a proclamation that this must be true. And later on, we're going to read what happens to these people. Then there were the true believers. 
They were the true believers. I think oftentimes when we go through the celebration of Palm Sunday, even Easter, we have this misconception that everybody that was gathered around them was on the same page. They're all following Jesus. They're all happy. Well, guess what? Most all of these people were the same people that were gathered around the courthouse to say and crucify him. The same people. So we can't imagine that all of these people were believers in Jesus Christ. No, they were not. But as is true, even today, you know, when there's a great crowd and there's a lot of hubbub, there's a lot of stirring up of the blood, you get a lot of people that gather, and most of them don't even know why they're there. Now, at least they did know that they're coming up to Jerusalem for Passover. They did know that. But it's interesting because John even points out, he kind of puts a finger on the fact that even his disciples, I mean, they have been with him for three and a half years. They have, they have witnessed miracle after miracle after miracle. He had just come from Jericho just a little while ago where he healed blind Bartimaeus. I mean, these things are, if you were looking at them, you'd say, wow, this is very strange. Everything is very different about this, this man, how he's unpacking it. But even at that time, after all these things are being unpacked, these disciples are scratching their heads, and they're, they're confused. I won't say they're unbelieving, but it was not sharp in their minds. And that's why he makes that comment in here. They remembered these things. When did they remember them? I would suggest to you that they probably remember them after the resurrection. After it was all settled and done, they probably looked, I think this is the one. I think this is the real Messiah. Prior to that, I know that Peter made the declaration. It was open declaration. It looked as though the people are all on board, but there was a hesitancy, a lack of faith, a lack of, un- a, a lack of belief. And then to cap it all off on the day of Pentecost, then all of the dots are connected by what? The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Testifying. Everything that happened in Jesus' life was indeed true. That was the seal. That was the thing that cemented in these people's minds that Jesus was absolutely true. Well, I want us to talk now about the message. First of all, these credentials the signs that actually were given to the people to ring the bell. And I want to talk about the message. First of all, the entrance into Jerusalem by the donkey. This, of course, I've already related to you. This is a sign of peace and not war. But I want to pause for a second. There was something else that entered into this journey into Jerusalem. Luke captures it. The others kind of skip over it. They don't talk about it. But it actually um, stirred my heart. Because if you can think of, I, I Beth Page, Bethany are like, uh, if I'm correct in my geography, like two miles away from Jerusalem. So as they uh, pass out of Beth Page and go up the Mount of Olives, and you guys would know better because you were standing around looking at stuff. So you know the geography, but this is, what I read, so he can correct me if I, this is incorrect. But he will go off the Mount of Olives, passing down towards the valley. And as he views not only the crowd, 
But if he views Jerusalem itself, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Okay? And he's not weeping like he, he did at the grave of Lazarus, quietly. It's very solemn. Jesus wept. I mean, he cried. And you, can you imagine being the disciples around there? Wait a minute, wait a minute, Jesus. This is your day. This is your day of glory. You're riding in the king of the Jews. They could recall some of these other entrances by some of the other kings in Israel. Totally different. Totally different. This is in all humility. And Jesus, as he's looking out in Jerusalem, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. What a sadness. Do you think for one minute Jesus clapped his hands at his people's unbelief? Not for one minute. He bled for them. He died for them. But as he gazed on Jerusalem, he took the temperature, he took the tempo of all these people that were out there gathered. It was fake. These, these cries of Hosanna. And Hosanna actually means save us. And that's what they were actually crying, save us. And he knew for sure and for certain that these people didn't actually know what they were professing. He wasn't coming as a conquering king. But then in John's gospel, we've got to skip uh, a few lines before we talk about the issue of the Greeks in the interaction with Philip and Andrew. But Jesus is very interested in proclaiming something before he departs. He wants these people to know something while the light is with them. So you recognize in John chapter 12, verse 35, So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. This is actually preceded by what he was speaking about when he says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Can you even imagine what was going on in Christ? Christ's mind, as he's going up into Jerusalem, knowing full well, that's the climax. That's the crucifixion. That's his death. And his soul is troubled. He says, Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your, for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And then he enters into his proclamation to all these people that are gathered. While I am here, you need to be taking advantage and not walk in darkness. The momentum or the, the, the impact, the importance of this day in the life of Jesus was huge. 
It was that last trumpet call for these people to be awakened. Now I want to turn for a second uh, to the issue of the Greeks. And going back to the title, I would see you. It's interesting to me that right before he says it concerning the Greeks, the scribes and Pharisees, number one, they were really upset that there was too many, uh, too many people around making so much noise. And uh, given to hyperbole, they say this, look, the world has gone after him. They were saying all of these people are chasing after Jesus. And then there's this little cameo section in which the Greeks come up to, to F- Philip and ask him, we would see Jesus, we want to see him. Philip and Andrew go to Jesus and he breaks off. He doesn't answer them. But it's interesting to me that Jesus takes this as a sign. And go back and think of what I just delivered to you of that which the scribes said. They didn't know what they were saying, but there was truth in what he was saying. Because then it says, after uh, Philip has told him that the Greeks wanted to talk to you, he says this, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He knows that the hour has been, it's ripe. Even those that are outside of the house of Israel are coming to seek me out. And that's his sign. If you've been following along the footsteps of Jesus since those early days of Nazareth, you recall time and time again where people tried to pitch over cliffs. They tried to kill him. They tried to do all kinds of things. And there's just that little line there and he escaped them. It was not yet his hour. So when he declare, declares here, yes, this is the hour. This is the time when actually the climax is right here. It's ripe. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be lifted up. Now I want to speak a little bit about the response. We had his credentials. We had his message. His message was a message of peace, an invitation. Please, people, wake up. Walk in the light. <clears throat> Well, we notice that, first of all, in response, earlier on, as we, we reflect back on all that's transpired, the crowds were very, very stirred up, yelling and screaming, making a lot of noise. And even as uh, Chris read this morning from that, uh, the Gospel of Luke, Jesus responds to, responds to the hierarchy that begged him, you, you got to cool this crowd because if you don't cool this crowd, we're very fearful that the, the hierarchy, the bad people, they're going to come and they're going to crush this. They're going to they're squelch it. And I just want to interject this for a second. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, knowing that there's much counterfeit celebration amongst the crowd, he doesn't squelch it. He doesn't tell his disciples, would you tell those people to chill? He, never, he doesn't do that at all. But then when these scribes and Pharisees come up and say, could you, you know, put the blanket on it? It's way too noisy. He turns to them and he says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Why? Because this is the day of the visitation of the king of kings into Israel. Don't squelch that sound. Don't even do it. But there was other signs that, you know, they were, they were right in front of them. It was a whole list of signs. 
but what characterized the people that day in the response? Unbelief. Unbelief. You find it later in the trial. I mean, these people are all gathered around. Crucify him. Unbelief. But Jesus takes this opportunity to relate to something that's been tucked away in Scripture for 500 years. It's been way back there. It's been prophesied that, you know, when you people gathered around here, what's going to transpire are these two things. One is from Isaiah 53, and the other one is Isaiah 6. I'm not going to read the whole thing, just what is recorded here in John. But sometime, it, it would actually be good for you to actually review, sit down and contemplate, meditate, and read through the entire chapter, chapter 53 and chapter 6. They're beautiful words, but they're also very sobering, very somber. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What a question. This is Isaiah 53. A a note, he understands, he sees that there's much unbelief there in the house of Israel. But then he goes on to say in, in, in Isaiah 6, he has blinded their eyes, hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understood with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Wow. I would heal them. Even this morning in Sunday school class, I don't want to take too much time in this, we were, uh, we were, I was asking my students, uh, would you be so convinced that God is who he says he is if you were standing at Mount Carmel and wow, that lightning bolt came down. It fried all the sacrifices. It drank up all the water. It, it, was, it was huge. And there have been signs all the way through the, the, uh, the Old Testament, haven't there? Israel, as she was coming out of Egypt, sign after sign after sign after sign. And I think sometimes because we have been so um, ingrained in the stories of the Testament, we actually take them very flippantly, casually, uh, not very carefully, to ask ourselves whether, in fact, we would be moved to believe in God. After all these signs. After all, the, in the New Testament, there was sign after sign that was most moving, and a lot of them shrugged their shoulders. I, I don't think this is authentic. But interestingly enough, there is a group of people, because remember I said there's three groups of people that are standing before Jesus here. There is a group of people, and this is their response. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. I wonder how many people that sit in the pews every Sunday of a church are so geared to the world that they would deny Christ for the accolades of people, for the acceptance of the people, or even for the threat of their body that they would surrender their belief to Jesus Christ. That was that second group there. They believed, they wanted to proclaim it, 
They actually believed but did not confess. And isn't it true that the two always go together? Believe in me and confess that I am the son of the living God, Jesus Christ. They have to go together. Well, the Israelites of the Old Testament, they were full of signs. They saw lots of signs. Okay, and they saw lots of wonders. I could recount them all. We all know these. And you saw how that worked out. The Jews, they had all these signs that led up three and a half years. And you saw how that happened. That that ended up. Some did. And as I read earlier on in John chapter 10, some of the eyes of the people were blinded. Others were opened up. They saw, they understood. So as we, as we reflect on this Palm Sunday, I want us to think for a second about what I said as a title in this sermon. I would see Jesus. Do you realize that the only way you can see Jesus is the work of the Holy Spirit? Full stop. It's not by signs. It's not even knowing this. You know, reading this all the time. It's not by you coming in here and collecting Sunday after Sunday. It's, it's not by any of that. It's the, the, the sweet grace of God that calls you by name. By his spirit, he calls you by name. He says, come here. I want you. You belong to me. And so we can devalue the importance of Palm Sunday by refusing to understand that it's not us, it's God alone by the Spirit. And why he does it to people like me, I don't know. I have no idea. But he does it. I am so glad. You know, Chris talked about joy before. If you wrestle with this, the importance of the fact that God, ever so loving, he looked inside your heart, not because of what you did, but he says, I want you. Come here. Glory, hallelujah. What a blessing. What an absolute blessing. I hope this has been somewhat beneficial, not so repetitive over all the things that you guys have been listening to on Palm Sunday, etc. Uh, you know, sometimes I, I don't watch TV anymore, but sometimes I, I look at TV about in Italy, uh, in particular, and this is huge. These holidays are huge. The high church, wow. They, they got all kinds of things going on on Easter week, okay? Don't you bleed for them? Don't you bleed for those that actually don't know Jesus but are going through the motions? I do. It's only those that God has drawn and they truly celebrate the essence of who Jesus is they truly have the right to celebrate because it's a glorious thing. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this hour, and I pray for each one that's gathered here, the young and the old. I pray, God, that uh, they, all of us, will do a review. We have a propensity, Lord, to view you slightly different than who you are. We imagine things that, are, that don't belong to you. And my prayer is that all of us would see you as you are. 
those things that really interfere with our contemplation, our meditation, our assessment of you, purges of those things. We would not only see you, Lord, we want you to be us. We want you, Lord, to live in us in such a way that when other people see us, they see you. <clears throat> and we openly confess that in all of our long days, most of the time we do not look like you do. This has been a special hour for me, and some people know what that means. It's been a privilege. It's been a blessing. I love all these people. I love this church. But I love your word. And I pray, God, that I did not waste their time today or bend your word. Before we leave today, I would pray, especially for our members in our church that are departing, they're separating from us physically, but I truly believe that they will be with us mentally. And uh, Jerry and Tamara, even though Tamara's not here, I do pray, Lord, that you would give uh, a special blessing to that family as they journey on to a different part of the country. And I pray in particular that those things that they've learned, they've uh, enjoyed, even in sovereign grace, will have an effect on wherever they're going in their church that they're going to be participating in. We're to be lights in the world, Lord, and it's an opportunity for that family to actually carry forward that which has been delivered to us so sweetly by our pastor. You know, he has uh, worked hard and long to give us a vision that is so sweet. And so I pray as people move on, as they they have other things that they're going to do, that all these things that are contained in your word, your, your presence would go with all of us individually. Pray this in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen.